Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And on the day we're recording this, I just got back from a vacation while I was out. Robert, you've been busy. You, you had a chat with quite a few people. Uh, yeah, I decided to, to log a few interviews since I, I couldn't sit here and chat with you. Uh, and uh, I happen to be in a, a yoga boot camp right now yeah. uh, where I'm, I'm, I'm going three days a week and doing yoga at a uh, ridiculous hour of the morning, mm. like really, really an intense, uh, sweaty yoga. So my, my, I've been thinking about yoga a lot, and I was like, well, if, if I can't talk to Joe, I'm going to talk to somebody about yoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I called up Ann Swanson uh, of uh, Ann Swanson Wellness. Uh, she's the author of Science of Yoga. Yoga, understand the anatomy and physiology to perfect your practice. And uh, so, yeah, this is good. This is just uh, me chatting with Anne about yoga, about, uh, about uh, you know, what yoga is, what yoga isn't, what happens when, uh, when science and spirituality uh, come together and occasionally, like, butt heads in yogic uh, practices, and also what the, the research is telling us and what it's not telling us about yoga and its benefits to, uh, to our mind, to our body, to the mind-body connection. Awesome. Well, I am really excited to hear this one. I'm sure the listeners out there, you folks are too. So maybe we should dive right in. Let's let's get in that pose. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Uh, Can can you uh, just uh, introduce yourself to our audience here? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad to be here, Robert. My name is Anne Swanson, and I am a total science nerd and spiritual nerd. I'm also a yoga therapist and meditation teacher by trade. I have a master's of science in yoga therapy. I'm an IAYT certified yoga therapist, and I studied yoga in India, where it is from. I am also a science educator, so I teach people about the real science supporting yoga. So I take out the woo factor of yoga that intimidates a lot of people, but I still strongly believe in respecting the rich tradition of this ancient practice that has really stood the test of time. So we're going to be talking about about yoga in this uh, this interview. So, but before we, we get going, I thought we, I might ask you to just uh, stop and uh, and just answer the question, for, for, especially for people who are maybe not that familiar with it. What is yoga? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's not what most people think it is. Most people see these billboards and covers of magazines, and they think it's thin people doing pretzel-like poses. Mm-hmm. But really, you don't have to be thin and flexible to do yoga. And the poses are only a small part of this practice. So like, that's the part that made it popular and famous, but really there's so much more. So there, the, the poses is the first part, but also we have breath work, controlled breathing practices for a specific physiological result. We have focus exercises that train your brain, meditation, and a rich philosophical underpinning that you can study that integrates into your lifestyle. So a lot of people describe yoga as an entire lifestyle. And the word yoga loosely means union. So really it's about feeling connected to ourselves, united to others and the world and feeling this greater sense of like compassion. Ultimately these practices, they build space in your mind and in your body for compassion. Yeah, I feel like the uh, sort of the billboard idea of yoga, like for, for me, when I first started doing yoga, that was something that uh, 
uh, it, thankfully, I got to a road away pretty quickly when I went to a, like a YMCA yoga class, and I got to experience it, you know, amid you know different age age levels, different ability levels, different uh, you know body types. And, uh, and and realize that uh, you know the, the sort of uh, uh, stereotypical billboard version of yoga was was not going to be what I was going to experience. Absolutely, and I think one of the things from a scientific perspective is that the research on yoga is not on how to have a bikini body mm-hmm. or uh, you know how to bend like a pretzel. Really, the research on yoga is on therapeutic population. So people like older adults, people that are obese with diabetes, with heart disease, with breathing issues. These are the people that are getting the most benefits from the practice of yoga. And that's what the research is showing. So I I hope that the image of yoga starts to change because the people that can benefit most are regular folks with anxiety, with stress, with the common issues that we deal with in modern day. And we're going to get into some of the details of this uh, here in a bit, but but I do want to go ahead and, and highlight uh, your book. Uh, you're the author of the two, 2019 book, Science of Yoga, Understand the Anatomy and uh, Physiology to Perfect Your Practice. Uh, naturally, there are a lot of yoga books out there, as anyone who's ever you know, done a search on Amazon or, or browsed uh, you know, through the bookstore can attest to. Uh, what sets this one apart? Yeah, I would say that this is not the typical how-to yoga book. Really, I describe it as a how it works yoga book. It's for those curious people who are going to yoga classes and constantly asking why. Why is this pose affecting my kidneys or squeezing out my toxins? Or even Mm -hmm. why do I feel so relaxed and sleep so much better after class? So I debunk a lot of those woo myths. Um, And also I worked with a world-class illustration team to not only tell you why, but to show you why. Yeah, I have to say that the layout and the illustrations in this book are, are just really gorgeous. It's it's very readable, very browsable, very consumable, and uh, and I love the way that it's divided up too. So beginning with just sort of an overview of human anatomy, like, you know, what are the different parts and systems of the body, before going into the the asanas, the the, the poses, and discussing how those uh, affect those systems. And then you have this very robust Q and A section at the end where you also engage in some myth busting as well, but but also just you know. A, a, discuss some of the uh, the scientific studies out there and what they're saying and what they're not saying in some cases. Yeah, it's really great for visual learners, but also for those kinesthetic learners, like people that are body-based learners that have to move because you can look at the picture and I, I think it invites you to actually move and see, is that the effect I'm feeling? Can I visualize my muscles, my organs working in that pose? So I, I hope it appeals to both of those audiences. Another big difference between my book um, and so many other yoga books is that I'm not just talking about the muscles and bones. So I am talking about all the systems of the body and the benefits of yoga. So from studying Western science myself, from doing pre-med course load and then earning my master of science in yoga therapy, I have basically had 10 years of tedious notes in my notebooks that was about how our body is affected through these stress management practices. And I compiled those to be in the most simple format, digestible format of the top benefits. And I cover all the systems of the body because those most profound benefits are to the cardiovascular system, 
which is showing that we can reduce blood pressure and and reverse heart disease with a yogic lifestyle or the immune system reducing inflammatory markers called cytokine, which are uh, really important because most of the major killers that we our society suffers from have to do with inflammation. And then, oh my gosh, the effects on your brain are so amazing. We could have an entire show on that itself. So I think it's important to emphasize how yoga affects all the systems of the body, not just that gross level. Yeah, I, I love how throughout the book you keep coming back to the mind-body connection. Uh, and in some cases, uh, I, I mean, we discuss the mind-body connection on this show a lot because, I mean, I, th- I think that's been one of the, the real, the real take-homes from a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of research over the, the past uh, several decades is that we, we realize that we're not just this, this brain uh, in a body. We're not this rider on a horse. We're this integrated system and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and all of our mental processes are not just you know, dependent on things that are bottled in there. Uh, but there are even, you know, some poses, some systems you're discussing, you, you bring in the, the mind portion of the equation, uh, so sometimes in, in cases where I, I'd never thought about it before, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, I tend to just focus on what this muscle is doing or what this muscle seems to be doing, and I'm not thinking about my mental state. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are a integrated whole, and the thing about yoga that makes it so magical that makes it work so well is that it is a whole person approach to well-being. So therapeutic yoga looks at the entire person. And yes, we move because there's profound benefits to movement and exercise, but we're also being aware of that movement, being mindful and present, feeling the vibrations of your 37 trillion cells or more in your body. You're, you're acknowledging that like life that aliveness that you have. And I think it's important that we acknowledge the whole person, the emotional being, the the person that has stressors, the person that has uh, triggers and issues that are stored in their tissues. So I think that's one of the great strengths of yoga is that it has that whole person approach. Uh, I want to touch on on research for a second here. Uh, you cited mm-hmm. a, a number of studies uh, in the book, especially uh, you know towards the end in the the, uh, the Q and A section, um, and, and you also have, you do have a wonderful uh, bit here too, where you're talking about how to uh, how to tell um, if a uh, if a particular study. Uh, is reliable and discussing things yeah. like sample size uh, uh, and, con- and the use of a control group. Uh, some things that uh, you know, folks who are used to maybe teasing apart a scientific study uh, might be aware of, but others not so much. Uh, in general, though, taking in all of this, this scientific uh, research, how much research is there into yoga? Well, you know, compared to pharmaceuticals, we don't have the same level of funding. So that is an issue. However, there has been an exponential growth of yoga research in the past decade, 20 years. So there is a decent amount of research in certain categories. So areas like mental health, that would be the top area, along with chronic pain. There's a lot of research. Uh, when we talk about yoga research, we're also talking about meditation research. So that's both of those categories have a lot for depression, anxiety, PTSD, along with chronic pain. And another area of research that is growing is for cardiovascular health and uh, for other other chronic pain conditions like arthritis and things that affect our daily life with disabilities. So those areas are absolutely growing because the research is promising. 
And I do want to say one reason I put that hierarchy of evidence in the book is because I feel like there is a lack of research literacy in the yoga community and the yoga teacher community, but also enthusiastic yogis. And I don't think that they, they want to be spreading um, kind of woo-woo claims. I think they really want to be telling people about the profound benefits. They just don't know how. And so if we can start to be critical about how we come about explaining the claims, the benefits, the warnings of the yoga poses and practices that we teach as yoga teachers, I think that's going to benefit the practice overall, making it more accepted in the mainstream by medical professionals, making it more accessible to those who can really benefit the most. Because I mean, when I'm in a yoga class and they say a claim like this is stimulating your kidneys and they go on about that, I'm in my head. Mm -hmm. I'm out of my body and I'm in my head. And I know that the doctor and the nurse next to me are too. So if we can, as yoga teachers, as yoga professionals, um, actually spread actual true claims, I think that's going to make a big difference. It, it is you know, fascinating to, to, to think about yoga and the, the sort of opposing ideas that are sometimes present there. Uh, you know, you have something that has ancient roots, and yet so much of it is actually quite modern. Uh, a particular class or teacher might invoke, uh, to your point, both both modern health and science, but also perhaps uh, some elements of, of Hinduism or New Age spiritualism. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's, it's kind of a challenge to... Um, to sort of balance all of that, right? I mean, to like, I, I, you know, you, you mentioned that you're a, you know both a, a science nerd and a, a spiritualism nerd, and like, to to what extent do you sort of have to have sort of two views of the yoga and have to sort of switch from one to the other uh, during a practice? Yeah, I, I don't think we should deny that yoga has its roots in India alongside Hinduism. Mm-hmm. But the brilliant things about the practice can be adapted to the modern day, to the culture, to the individual and their beliefs. So, for example, if you're not religious at all, you can have a completely secular yoga practice and have the profound benefits, have the brain changes and the physiological health benefits. Or if you're religious, you can incorporate prayer. Like I'm working with a Catholic woman right now and she's doing her meditative practices with a rosary. So I think it's okay to adapt it because ultimately if you are becoming a healthier and more peaceful and connected human being, then that's a good thing for the world. However, what does bother me where I do have a bone to pick is when teachers and yoga professionals don't fess up to their modern adaptations of mixing these modalities. Mm. So for example, let me use my example of the kidneys. I feel like I hear that a lot from teachers that have a Chinese medicine base. They're saying this is affecting your kidneys. Well, scientifically, we can't claim that your kidneys are being affected from some stretch or another. There's no research supporting that. It doesn't even really make sense with my understanding of anatomy and physiology. I mean, all your organs are benefited from a yoga practice in general, but we can't say that it's this particular pose versus that particular pose is affecting this organ um, for the most part. But I think that what could be done is rather than just saying this is affecting your kidneys, which is confusing people, is say something like, well, according to Chinese medicine, this would affect your kidney meridian, right? Like Mm -hmm. then you're actually describing the source of it so that the people aren't thinking, well, actually our modern day conception of the kidney in the West is being affected. I think that that's where it gets confusing and where it could be a little clearer and why we should, as 
yoga practitioners constantly ask why, wait, why, what do you mean? Oh, you mean the kidney meridian? Oh, I got it. Yeah. I, 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 it's kind of like, I guess, um, with, with the body, we're sometimes engaging with metaphorical or semi-metaphorical sort of spiritual models for what our bodies are doing and how we're experiencing our, our bodies and our, and, and our mind. Uh, so you're saying it's sort of a, a good idea to be able to, to state like which mo- model we're dealing with for a particular claim, right? I think so. Like where you got it from, be able yeah. to know where you, where you got it from. That's just a basic, also back to that scientific literacy is like, where did I hear that from? Right. Can I look it up and confirm it? Cause our memories will start to fade and change things over time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, another thing that comes up here, we've, um, we, we spoke with a, a researcher on the show in the past whose focus was mindfulness, and they brought up how um, to study meditation in some in some of these uh, studies they were conducting. You know, obviously they stripped away some of the more spiritual aspects of the, the meditative practices. I think they were looking at Tibetan models, and then they're you know, stripping away any uh, uh, spiritualism from that. But then also even ref- uh, even re- removing the word meditation from it, to referring mm. it to something else during the study, so as not to uh, you know uh, you know ignite any biases uh, uh, among the uh, the participants. But then they acknowledge that you know is there is there a you know a risk there in removing some of the the ideas, the spiritual ideas, not to, you know, say that there is, you know, some sort of, of magical practice going on here, but but if we remove sort of the, the spiritual fluff from the mechanics of something, that it, uh, perhaps we're taking away something that helps it work. Do you, do you ever think that's, that might be the case with some of these yogic practices? You know, from my experience of reading research, a lot of yoga researchers are not stripping away that essence, mm-hmm. that that profound part of it. And so with meditation and with yoga, so I'll, I'll give it as a two-part answer. So with meditation, a lot of the researchers themselves are meditators. So they want to maintain the essence of the practice. So let me give you an example. The There is a study that's my favorite study of meditation of all time. It's at Wake Forest School of Medicine. And they had four different groups. One group was a mindfulness meditation group. They were taught mindfulness meditation by an experienced expert. They were taught the process, a little bit of the history, and guided through a traditional practice. Now, and this particular research study was evaluating pain. So they gave them a little shock in their leg before they learned meditation, before they got the treatment, and then after they were getting the treatment. Another group got a placebo cream. So they didn't learn any meditation or any processes, but instead they got a cream. They said, this is going to really help. It has an analgesic effect, even though it didn't. The third group got a, the control of listening to a book. Like not even related. That was the control group. Now, the fourth group is my favorite. (laughs) The fourth group got sham meditation. (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. Fake meditation. So instead of being taught the traditional mindfulness techniques as the first group got, they were here. Let's do it together. You can do it at home if you're listening too. So sit tall. Imagine you're in a group of people, you're, you're sitting on the floor in a circle. Okay. I am the instructor and I'm saying, all right, everybody take a deep breath. 
We are sitting here and we are meditating. Keep breathing. Keep meditating. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So what they found was pretty amazing. All the groups improved except the control. The book listening did nothing. Mm -hmm. But the sham meditation, the placebo cream, and the mindfulness meditation group, they all improved. But the mindfulness group significantly reduced pain compared to the others. That's pretty powerful. And I think that researchers really do care about keeping that essence of the practice in. Now, I'd like to talk about a yoga example if I can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I also used to think that about yoga. Well, if we if we do research on yoga, then we're going to lose that essence, lose that whole person approach to well-being. So a seven-year clinical trial, a randomized controlled trial on yoga for arthritis at Johns Hopkins University by Dr. Munaz showed significant improvements in arthritis symptoms, including reduced joint swelling, as measured by rheumatologists, which is a very objective measure, improved health-related quality of life, which is this like broad measure, but it is a validated instrument that shows that overall quality of life improved from doing yoga. And also the huge finding is that pain was reduced by about 30%, which is significant. That's similar to what many pharmaceuticals do. So this particular trial by Dr. Munaz was not just, you know, 10 poses to help you with your knee arthritis. It was a well-rounded practice, a well-rounded yoga practice that included awareness and focus exercises. Chanting, chanting the sound of OM. I was really uh, impressed by some of the details you shared about uh, about chanting OM uh, as well, because that's something when, when I practice yoga by myself, sometimes I have this moment of doubt where I'm like, do I really need to say OM? There's, no, there's nobody else here. Uh, and I found your answer interesting. Yes. Actually, I'll get back to that because this particular researcher, Dr. Munaz, taught yoga or taught a meditation to Congress and had them sneakily chant OM. So I'd like to... <laughs> circle back around to that. So the the entire practice that she taught for arthritis had all these elements like OM that are required. Like I teach this as a teacher training. People can come as yoga teachers and learn how to teach this evidence-based program yoga for arthritis. And a lot of teachers come and they think they're going to learn some magical sequence. But instead, they get a basic hatha, which is that basic style of yoga class, and they get philosophy that's pulled from the rich tradition of yoga that's integrated through the class that makes it really rich and specific to arthritis and chronic pain and dealing with pain and all the things that come with arthritis. That's what the real magic, the essence of that practice is. And you have to teach a well-rounded yoga class in order to have this evidence-based program. Like you can't just go in and take those elements out and not chant OM and not incorporate the philosophy, then it's not yoga for arthritis based off of a seven-year clinical trial. And a lot of yoga researchers are doing that. When you look at their actual protocols, it is a well-rounded practice that includes a lot of traditional elements. So back to the sound of OM and why that's important. 
Well, we know that singing and verbalizing has great benefits for your health. If you do sing in the shower, you know that it makes you feel good. But also in the modern day, we know that it stimulates the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that is coming off from the base of the brain. And it's the only one that goes to other areas of the body. It goes to your heart and your gut, and it's connecting your mind and the vital organs of your body. So it, it is responsible in essence for that mind-body connection or greatly responsible for it. And when you chant, the vibrations are stimulating that nerve, which puts you in the rest, digest, and rejuvenate state of your nervous system, that parasympathetic nervous system state, that place where you're healing at the highest capacity, all your organs are functioning at their optimal level. In that place, your heart rate slows, your blood pressure goes down. Your digestion improves. So chanting the sound OM is doing that. And according to yogic tradition, the sound of OM specifically is sacred. It has these three parts that represent a sense of beginning, middle, and end, a sense of life and connection. I mean, they say that before the universe, before the before the Big Bang, there was only the sound of Om. And that's where we all came from, right? That's the mythology, the tradition. Well, what I find interesting in the research, of course, this is like a small trial. Not many people have money to research something so esoteric as this, but they compared people chanting the sound of Om versus people just going Oh, making a, s- a sound? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And the sound of OM changed their brain waves more into that relaxed state of alpha when the sound of S didn't. The sound of OM had more uh, going into the parasympathetic nervous system that rest and digest than the sound of S. So maybe the yogis were on to something, whether or not you want to believe the mythology of the beautiful mythology of before the Big Bang, there was only the sound of OM or not. The sound of OM does have physiological benefits, and it feels good to do it. So back to that researcher, Dr. Munaz, who did the yoga for arthritis trial. She was asked to teach meditation, a meditation like to open an event for Congress. And she asked them if she could chant OM. And she was told no. (laughs) (laughs) So she's a little bit of a rebel. Actually, I'd like you to do this with me, what she did. She didn't ask permission to do this. She just went on the stage and she said, okay, everybody, we're going to sigh together. So Robert, you can do it with me. If you're at home, you can try it out with me because you're going to get the same benefit. So notice your breath, notice your posture. We'll do three sighs together. Repeat after me. Ah. (sighs) Oh. Mm. Hmm. So basically, she tricked <laughs> Congress <laughs> into oming. That's this beautiful. I love the idea of of getting you know everyone in Congress to um, to sort of have their their neurons fire on the same wavelength for for once, for at least for a moment there. Absolutely. All right. Looks like it's time for a break, but we will be right back with more of this interview. 
and we return. Uh, so uh, you, you touched a little bit on this already, but I wanted to, to ask you about something you, you uh, discuss in the book here, uh, and that's uh, mirror neurons. Because uh, one of the things that I often find uh, with, with yoga is that you know, I, I can I can do yoga on my own and have sort of a a, a, a standard routine, probably too standard that I fall into, uh, and and then I can do a video and get a little more out of it. But you know, there's nothing like going to a class, and I, a large part of that is like I feel is it's it's following somebody's instruction. It's doing what they tell me to do, doing what they show me, and then also sort of uh, you know looking around and seeing what other people are doing and, you know, when I need reminders about which arm is in the air and which one's on the floor, et cetera. Uh, but uh, but you, you, uh, you mentioned neuro, mirror neurons as being a, a key to what's going on here. Yeah, I think actually there's several components I'd like to mention. Mirror okay. neurons being one of them, you know, you are connecting with what the teacher is doing and you're physically moving your arm in a similar way and you're thinking that out, but you're also probably connecting with your teacher's compassion mm. or present moment awareness. And same with the people present with you in the room, the people next to you. So that absolutely is a contributing factor to those group classes. But also, I would say that there's something quite special or magical about a group setting. We are herd animals. We are social creatures. And isolation is the new smoking. So to come into a group of people and to practice something that's healthy and positive and connect with people is really profound for our health. Uh, and I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier, um, and, and this is something that a, a claim about yoga or, or just something you hear about yoga a lot that, that always kind of um, – raise my doubts. Uh, and that was the idea that there's, that you have like emotions stored in your body and then they're released during yoga. Mm-hmm. And and yet at the same time, like I've, I've had experiences during yoga where this felt very true, uh, you know, where I'll, I'll, I'll suddenly have some sort of, um, you know, negative emotion that seems to sort of be released from inside me, or maybe I'm, you know, I'm, I, I end up even tearing up during the practice. So, uh, where do you stand on this? The, this idea of, of emotional release during yoga practice. Well, it's undeniable. Like you said, if you practice yoga for a certain amount of time, eventually you'll feel something like this. And like that Ayurvedic saying, which is that Indian medical system, Ayurveda, it, I mentioned earlier, the issues are stored in the tissues. So I'm also a licensed massage therapist, and I see this all the time. People will cry or even laugh when you release a muscle. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's even more powerful when somebody can do that for themselves. So you're on your island of a yoga mat, and I, as a teacher or yoga therapist, am just guiding you through that awareness and movement. So I'm teaching you how how to release those stored emotions that maybe have been ignored. And when you release that, that there's a relief of letting go of that tension that's held in your body, but also there is a psycho-emotional release that may help you live to your fullest. And that's really what I want to do is like empower people to learn how to use these practices so they can do that for themselves. They don't have to come to me or go get a massage. They now have the tools to be able to do this for themselves. And that brings me to something that I think is interesting to explain from both a spiritual and a scientific perspective is that concept of prana. So prana is 
vital energy or life force. You may have heard it as qi in Chinese tradition and different Asian philosophies and, and native philosophies. There's this like vital energy that makes us us and that surrounds us and connects us, a life force. Well, I, as I was studying the pre-med course load and doing physics and anatomy and physiology, it started to conceptualize prana as maybe something that ancient yogis who like devoted their whole life to this practice, observing their bodies, feeling it, observing, writing these observations down, they were basically feeling the physiology and the physics of their own body. So there's these different types of energy that we have in our body. And perhaps, perhaps prana is all of those put together. Now, this is just like my theory. Maybe it'll change in time, but this right. is how I feel about it. So we have these emotional charges. We have these uh, held emotional energies in our body, and they change. They evolve and turn into electrical energy, right, through our nervous network, this eloquent electric language that we have within us. So that now it's in our nervous system and how our brains fire and how our muscles are connected to our nerves and maybe how they hold tension. And then there's also this mechanical energy in us. We have these vibrating cells within us that are all communicating through our body and they are affected by our lifestyle changes. So yoga affects your biochemistry, changes the way your cells release chemicals, the way your brain releases chemicals. And then there's this like sense of potential energy within us that, that is released from kinetic energy, from movement, from the poses or asanas. And we feel this flowing energy, this, the blood and the fluid circulating in our body. So maybe prana is all of this, all these types of energy that I learned about in physics class, maybe the ancient yogis were just feeling it and put a word to it and called it vital life force energy. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great point because obviously you know we, sometimes we think about people uh, in the ancient past and we have uh, we have a reluctance to attribute like um, you know r really modern consciousness to them and to to realize that they would have you know that they're obviously capable of having you know very deep thoughts and, and insights into into say what the body is doing uh, even if they don't have certainly the modern terminology or the you know, the English language terminology for for what's going on. I like how you emphasize uh, Hans uh, Salier's uh, 1936 concept of not only stress but but you stress. Um, can you explain the distinction and how it factors into yoga? Yeah, we think stress is bad. Let me get rid of stress, right? But I will tell you, although I do believe in the power of yoga, it will not get rid of your stress. What it will do is help change how you perceive, experience, and deal with stress. So that you can deal with stress with a better attitude and more resilience. So Hans Selye coined the term stress in 1936. And he described that as the body's response to change. So not necessarily a bad thing as we talk about it in the modern day. 
Now there's two different types of stress. There's eustress, like the word euphoria, that, that mm-hmm. same root word. It's like a good stress. And then there's distress. That's what we think of in the modern day, right? As that bad stress, or I don't even necessarily want to say bad stress. It's like a real or imagined stress that puts pressure on your system that weighs down your system and puts this greater load on it that makes your organs work harder that degrades your brain tissue, that ultimately leads to these lifestyle diseases, these lifestyle diseases like heart disease and diabetes and um, arthritis, these things that start to uh, affect, not just start to, that are deeply affecting our society. So I say that yoga can help you deal with that distress better and not have as much imagined distress. So it's real or imagined stressors, right? Like like the, so the paper of, tigers uh, uh, of our yeah, lives, right? Right. Like we feel like we're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger and we have the same physiological stress response as if we are when we're about to go into a meeting. And instead, like, it's probably going to be fine. Your, your life is not in danger. You do not need to release the same level of cortisol or stress hormones or adrenaline. Yes, uh, throughout the day, not to criminalize adrenaline or stress hormones, because throughout the day, those go up and down and we need to have them. We don't want to be stress-free. We actually need to have stress to rise to the occasion. So instead, when I'm about to go into a meeting or I'm about to do a talk, maybe I can observe my heart beating and my sweat as an indicator that this is something that's important to me. Now, can I use my tools of yoga to clear my mind, to breathe deeply, make sure I'm getting the proper breath for the awareness that I need in the moment? Kelly McGonigal, a researcher, talks about this, that you can observe that stress response as a good thing, as your body rising to the occasion to be able to handle that stress. So I think that yoga and the mindset shift from yoga is that, oh, I can deal with the stress. Now I have tools to not get into a spiraling down anxiety in this stressful state. Instead, I can observe it and say, okay, this is hard, but like this could be turned into a good type of stress. Or maybe I can minimize those those imagined stresses here in the moment through awareness, through mindfulness, through deep breathing, or a, a pose that helps me feel more connected and aware. So in, in discussing the mind and our, um, you know, and, and also our perceptions of stress and so forth, uh, the, the brain itself, can, can yoga change the brain? Yes, it sure does. It, the electrical activity in our brains changes, like in the moment when you are meditating or when you're doing a mindful practice uh, like yoga, like movement with awareness. So you go from that alert state where your mind is constantly balancing around that beta brain waves to more alpha brain waves, which is that relaxed state of the mind where it's like you're about to fall asleep. Yeah, the mind wanders a little here and there, but mm-hmm. it's lesser so. 
And then sometimes meditative practices can even put us in a different electrical state, the theta waves, which are associated with creativity. And this is something really common in kids. They have a lot of theta waves, but adults don't as much. But meditators can go into that creative space more. Beyond that, yoga in the short term and in the long term affects what parts of your brains are are firing. So in the short term, we can look and see that the areas of your brain through these, these awareness practices that are firing are, for example, your prefrontal cortex that has to do with that's that essence that makes us us as humans. It helps us plan and evaluate and regulate our emotions. Hmm. And that area increases with a lot of these practices because we're focused. And over a long term, that area becomes measurably thicker. Like we can look at it in a scanner and see that you have more brain tissue because you have more connections in that area. And to maintain the brain connections in our prefrontal cortex is huge because as we age, there's a natural degradation that occurs with age. But if we can maintain that, then we are basically like Sarah Lazar's researcher, her, she's a Harvard researcher, and she shows that 50-year-old meditators have key brain structures similar to that of 25-year-old non-meditators. Oh, wow. So this suggests, yeah, that meditation may slow or even prevent some of the natural degradation of brain tissue that happens with aging. So that is pretty huge. Some other areas of your brain are down-regulated. So areas like your, your fear center is down-regulated. And then your memory area, your hippocampus, builds more connections. So you have more of a sense of being able to recall things from the far past, but more of a working memory, I think, is what's really important to a lot of people. That improves through these meditative practices, so through yoga and through meditation. The, all of these changes are pretty profound. I don't know. I I also like the biochemical effects because we are seeing changes in the chemistry of your brain. Uh, there is a type of neurotransmitter called GABA that is basically something that counteracts anxiety and stress symptoms. So when we are uh, depressed or anxious, a lot of the medications actually are increasing our GABA levels. They're affecting hmm. those. Well, meditation does that and yoga does that on its own. It increases GABA, which means that you are more relaxed and you have less of those stress and anxiety sort of symptoms. Also, serotonin, one that we, we've all heard of that uh, medications affect for depression and anxiety. Well, that goes up from meditation and yoga. And Dopamine is a reward chemical that's regulated. That's regulated through yoga and meditation. And then cortisol overall is reduced. That stress hormone and norepinephrine or the adrenaline basically is reduced overall from, from yoga and meditation. So all of these chemicals change. That's pretty awesome. I mean, that's what the pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know is that you right. can do a lot of this on your own. And I'm not suggesting that we should not take medications when needed. There's a lot of conditions that absolutely need it or times in your life where you may need it in order 
to get out of that funk. But yoga is being shown through the research to be an excellent adjunct therapy to be used alongside whatever your medical team and you decide is appropriate for you because it has these same brain chemistry changes. I know I want to go back to uh, discussions of, of of the the yoga community and uh, uh, you know spiritualism and science and sometimes the the sort of butting uh, of heads between the two. Uh, in 2012, um, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times science writer William J. Broad's book, uh, The Science of Yoga, The Risks and Rewards, came out. And uh, I thought it was a, a very illuminating book. Uh, I read it when it came out, and I appreciated the attention to historic and scientific detail. Uh, but he also caught some criticism from some in the yoga community uh, due, I think, in large part to uh, d- discussions of injuries and, uh, and, and really the, the risk portion of that subtitle. Uh, what's, what's your take uh, on this? Well, first of all, I agree that the historical aspects of the book were really fascinating. It drew me in. But it's funny, I was actually at a conference soon after that book came out. I was Mm -hmm. at the Symposium of Yoga Research at Kripalu. So that's where uh, all the yoga researchers in the world get together and nerd out about the recent yoga research. And some of the researchers who were interviewed in his book or whose research was referred to in his book definitely felt misconstrued. Hmm. The yoga community, whether it be the mainstream yoga community or also the yoga research community, felt misconstrued. And I would say the, the reason being is that uh, yoga researchers tend to be quite conservative in their claims and reasonable. And this book is an editorial book versus mine, which is like a reference book and an educational resource. So in this editorial style often comes some sensationalizing, hmm. which I won't lie. It really makes it interesting and it makes it a New York Times bestseller. So he actually put out an article in the New York Times right when the book was released called How Yoga Will Wreck Your Body. And he does practice yoga, so he's not saying yoga is actually bad, but that sort of villainization or that sensationalizing, I don't think is overall helpful for getting yoga to the masses. So I think that that is part of it. Um, I mean, there's a systematic review on the safety of yoga. That a review is when there's enough research that we can look at it and be like, okay, here's what all of that research says. And it shows that yoga is as safe, if not safer, than other forms of exercise. And I would argue it's safer because we have that sense of present moment awareness and and the philosophy of not harming yourself. So that's one aspect of it. It's just kind of sensationalizing any harm that could happen from yoga. There are some, some injuries with yoga. And I think it's important that yoga teachers know ways to be safer. And I have some things that you can, as a practitioner or teacher, be able to to understand the safety in my book, Science of Yoga, compared to the science of yoga. They get confused a lot. Um, but in my book, I talk about that because I think it is important. However, the number of injuries is pretty darn low when we look at how much yoga is practiced. It is overall a really safe practice. Um, and he was also pretty critical of yoga therapy, which is my field, and it is an emerging field, but now we have a clear scope of practice. And veterans affairs hospitals, VA hospitals are hiring full-time yoga therapists due to their success and the research on PTSD and chronic pain, two issues that veterans 
really can benefit from. So there is a shift happening towards integrative and preventative health care. And the International Association of Yoga Therapists has a seat at the table. So since Broad has written that book, things have changed rapidly and they are continuing to change as more and more research comes out. Now, on the, on the topic of, uh, of, of risks, uh, you do have a section in, in your book about cautions and, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that I found uh, very insightful uh, because I, th- I think back to times where, you know, only a couple of really mainly one or two times where I've had some sort of minor, um, you know, uh, injury, I guess, uh, from yoga. It's generally from times where I was overzealous and I wasn't really approaching it with uh, the right uh, uh, mindset where I'm like, oh, I really, I've got to have that bind. Like that bind looks so 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 great. I feel like if I could just connect my my hands in this particular pose, uh, I'll be so happy. And then, of course, I pull something because my body is not ready to do that. Uh, so so uh, that, that seems to be a part of the scenario, right? That we should just know, knowing what to do and, and what not to do for our bodies, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I work with a lot of people one-on-one because as a yoga therapist, I am working with more the at-risk populations, people with joint replacements, chronic pain, severe arthritis, back issues. And so I would suggest to people to, if you feel like you're not sure, to get a one-on-one teacher or a yoga therapist. But if you feel like you can go to a group class, don't compare yourself to other people in the room. Try to make sure that you are on your little island of a yoga mat and you are doing what is right for you. You are not harming yourself. I think that that is really important. There are some key things you can do to not get hurt. And I like to outline those things and I teach teachers those things because I think it is important. But I also don't want to sensationalize that aspect of yoga because overall, yoga is safe. Just don't push yourself too hard. Now you already touched on, uh, on on at least one yoga myth, and like I say in the in the book, you 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 do uh, bust some myths here and there. You mentioned the kidneys already. Uh, do you have another great example that that uh, you feel comes up uh, a bit too often? Yeah, I hear in yoga classes sometimes it's said we're doing this twist to help you bring out the toxins. Or they describe a yoga class as like detoxifying after Thanksgiving or a night of drinking. And I do not think that you were wringing out your toxins by twisting. I, I think also that I don't like the philosophy of considering myself toxic. Hmm. My body is able to deal with toxins efficiently through the liver, filtering them. And by movement... I'm not stimulating my liver, not as far as we know. Like the liver is not an organ that works by like squeezing it. Like that's not what encourages this function. However, the digestive organs are, they work by movement and squeezing them that helps that process of peristalsis or the movement of food through the digestive tract, through your bowels. So instead I might replace that when we're twisting as you are encouraging good digestion and a flow to have good proper elimination. You're encouraging that peristalsis. That is a true benefit. But I don't know if I buy that you are wringing out the toxin, nor do I buy that, that you are toxic and you need to do something about it. 
I think you are whole and perfect just as you are. You do not need to detoxify yourself. And that is the philosophy of yoga is recognizing that wholeness. Your body does that naturally. So I think it's just best to focus on what's actually happening. And what's actually happening is pretty darn cool. So why not? So for anyone out there who who has heard, you know, heard this interview and they're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to finally try yoga. Uh, and they're going to go out somewhere and try it for the first time. What advice do you have for them? Don't feel like you need to be flexible or have a certain body type. Most of the yoga research is on the profound benefits for older adults and people with chronic diseases. Like anybody can do this. That's what the research is showing. So it's not about, you know, being able to put your, feet behind your ears. Like mm-hmm. the research, if anything, it shows that it's about what's in between your ears that is most eff- profoundly affected. So I would say just try it. Take a 10 minute break of yoga at work and do something in your chair. I have some free videos on my website and swansonwellness.com. You can do these things right at work. Do yoga breaks. So instead of going on a smoking break, Take a yoga break. You're going to have even more benefits from doing small practices throughout the day rather than a full 60-minute practice if that feels overwhelming to you. So actually, you're going to get more from it if you can take a five-minute meditation here or two-minute meditation there. So I would say try it. If you don't like a specific class, try another. Maybe get a one-on-one teacher so that you can adapt it for your body and Feel like you can do small things because the small things make a big difference. All right. Looks like it is time for a quick break, but we will be right back with more. And we're back. Now, of course, when, when someone tries out yoga for the first time or the second time, the third time, they try different options. You know, they're, again, they're going to encounter those, uh, you know, those, uh, that intersection of, uh, of science and spiritualism, which... Uh, which again is is I think one of the most fascinating things going going on with yoga. Uh, yeah, I'm of the the mind that uh, you know that both are important. Uh, the science has to be uh, you know our skeptical bedrock, but the the spiritual modes of thinking can greatly improve the human condition. How, how do how do you integrate the two in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I want to emphasize that science and spirituality do not have to be mutually exclusive. So, like I said, I am a total hashtag science nerd, hashtag spiritual nerd, get my millennial side in there. Um, I, I work with people with chronic pain, anxiety, and sleep issues because yoga therapy is so well suited for these multifaceted, complex lifestyle conditions. And it's that spiritual component that I think really does serve people. So it's not only does the scientific research suggest, but that these these practices have benefits, but also that they are life changing. And that's what people tell me. And that's my experience myself. People say to me, this simple practice that you gave me, it literally changed my life. And when somebody says life changing to me, that represents a spiritual shift, but you may not be comfortable with the word spiritual and that's cool. Like you can replace it. I mean, I'm embracing it, but you can replace it to a mindset shift or a life of more purpose and meaning. That's what I think yoga provides us or can provide us. And one of my favorite quotes is by Einstein. If I can read that, he says that a human being is a part of a whole 
called by us as universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. That's a great quote. Yeah, to me, that's what yoga helps me realize is, is the, that interconnectedness, that union. And I think that it can be both science-based and have research to support it and have that spiritual component, that deeper sense of connection simultaneously. Well, you, we, we talked about this before we went, uh, uh, went on the air here, uh, if you will. Uh, you gave us this uh, e- example of the, the fake meditation, the fake mindfulness exercise earlier. Um, so uh, we're going to see if you can close out here for us with an example of, a, of an actual mindfulness exercise that our, our listeners can also participate in. Absolutely. And you meant, remember me mentioning earlier that the sound of OM stimulates the vagus nerve and puts you in that rest to digest state. Well, the ancient yogis also intuited that elongating your exhales puts you into that relaxed state, and it actually does. It stimulates your vagus nerve also, so you can go into a deeper relaxation state quicker if you elongate your exhales. I think it's pretty cool they intuited that, and now we we have a name for it, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Like, not that you need to know the name, but <laughs> that we have an actual name for it in the modern scientific day. So let's practice it for ourselves. You, If you're, like, driving around in the world, you can have your eyes open and continue on your day doing this. Or if you are comfortable at home, you're welcome to sit or stand tall and pause for a moment, maybe even close your eyes if that's comfortable. Notice your natural breath to begin. I'd like you to bring your breath down. What I mean by that is allow your belly to move more with your breath, to expand with the inhales and release down and in with the exhales. You may even want to put your hands on your belly to feel and allow that. Begin to elongate your exhale. Trying to let as much of the breath out with each exhale without forcing. You may be deepening your breath. That's good. Maybe even listen to your breath as you do this. You may hear all the sounds around you in whatever environment you're in. But focus on your breath in the foreground, feeling it, sensing it, hearing it. As you elongate your exhales for five more deep breaths.
finishing off these breaths as you finish them. Notice how your body feels, the state of your mind from just a minute or two of awareness and simply elongating your exhales. If your eyes are closed, you can gently open them. Thank you so much, Robert, for having me on the show. Oh, thank you for, uh, for joining us and uh, discussing uh, yoga and discussing your book. Absolutely. And if people are interested in the research, I have a reference guide on my website, scienceof.yoga, and you can download it and click right to these research studies. So if you're interested in not only my book, The Simple Ways, but being able to dive in and see for yourself as you ask why, 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 I have those guides on www.scienceof.yoga. Excellent. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. All right, so there you have it. Um, again, the book is Science of Yoga, Understand the Anatomy and Physiology to Perfect Your Practice. It came out this year in 2019, and it's available, I think, in pretty much all formats and in different languages. Again, it's a gorgeous book. Uh, the, the layout and illustration and the content itself is fabulous. And you can check out uh, Anne's website at annswansonwellness.com. And if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find our show. If you want to check out Invention, you'll find that at inventionpod.com and you'll also just find the show wherever you get podcasts these days and wherever that may happen to be uh, sprinkle a few stars our way uh, leave a nice review that really helps us out Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.